So Philippians 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or laboured in vain. Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. That is God's word, and we'll be studying that together now. So as we look at those first uh, parts of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18 there, there were some words that uh, I struggled to get my head around, which isn't always uncommon, but I, I suspect for some of us we may look at this and wonder what Paul is saying. And how applicable this is for us. We, we know this was a letter written to the church in Philippi. But how applicable is something to us when it says, as you have always obeyed? Now, I read those words and started thinking about all the times that I hadn't obeyed. Started thinking about all the times that I had fallen short of that. We get to those words there. And it's a, a very loaded phrase that Paul presents to the Philippians. And when we read this, we, we're likely going to have one of three responses. Now, there, there are more, but I, I suspect these are the three responses that we're likely to have. One, we don't really pay attention to it. Let's let it slide by, we move on to the other stuff. Uh, number two, we start thinking about how we really haven't been all that obedient in our lives to God, despite everything that we've just read last week in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, of that, that ultimate example of humility in Jesus Christ and the example he sets for us to walk in, in godliness in every single way. Now, the third option is to go, you know what, I really am pretty obedient, I'm a pretty good guy, and we sort of get a little bit caught there. Now, we, we likely respond in those ways, perhaps other ways to the words we read here. Uh, circumstances, uh, to date, character, personality, maybe the cereal you had this morning, the drive you had to church coming here, whether that was a, a friendly drive with the passengers in your car or a not-so-friendly drive, may change how we read these words here. Now, I'd encourage each one of us to, to not take option one and ignore these words. I'd likewise encourage us to, if we're looking at option two, to acknowledge those times where we fall short, but not beat ourselves up. This is not the point of what Paul says here. And I'd likewise suggest that option three isn't a great option because last week we looked at humility and thinking, well, yeah, I have been perfectly obedient, sort of flies in the face of the six verses we studied last week. We need to find something of a middle ground in here to understand this. And when we look at this, we also need to understand the people who Paul is writing to. When Paul writes to the Philippians saying that they have always obeyed, we need to keep in mind a few things. The, the verses we read today have a very strong link back to chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. 
And verse 27 of those there, while it's worded as an encouraging thing for the Philippians, still a proactive, productive, positive thing for them to do, there does seem to be something of a warning there based on a, a perceived shortcoming, a particular shortcoming that they had there. We also see Paul talk there about the unity that the church was to have. And if you fast forward to chapter 4, verse 2, we see that there's been a fairly serious falling out between two ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, which threatens to tear the church apart as well as have effects on not only their unity together, their witness to Philippi, but also their effectiveness in supporting Paul in his work to spread the gospel further abroad. These guys aren't perfect, and it shouldn't surprise us, but perhaps when we read this, we think they were pretty good. And overall, they do seem to be a well-behaved church with still some struggles. What Paul seems to be saying when he says that they've always been obedient is that he's commending the obedience that they seem to have shown to him as an apostle. Whether they've done it well or not, when Paul has spoken to them, they have listened to him. They've given him the respect that the officers do, and they have tried by God's grace, to apply these things in their life. And he's appealing to that obedience to continue and to grow. And he's calling for that obedience to continue and grow, whether he can be with them again or not. As we read today, he's thinking that it's probably going to cost him his life what he's doing to serve God. But he calls him to continue in that obedience. We're looking at this game, Paul's saying, as you've been obedient, whether I'm there or not, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Those points of obedience, grow in them, continue them, and continue them so that you might work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I hear those words, work it out, the weight of responsibility falls on me. I'm sure we've heard those words in different contexts. Maybe in a maths class, you you know all the formula, but you're not sure which formula you need to apply to a certain equation to figure it out, and your teacher says, work it out. Anna and I have a relative who grew up with a number of brothers, and when he and his brothers used to get into fights when they were younger, their mum would give them a stick each, the the children that would be misbehaving. The older one got a shorter stick, the younger one got a younger stick, uh, got a longer stick. They were sent into the backyard and said, told, work it out. Anna and I obviously don't have kids. We haven't spoken about what conflict resolution methods we'd have. Not sure if this is going to make the list. Uh, It sorts a problem out, but it doesn't really scream justice, does it? When when you, you hear those words, work it out, it can so often become... What do I need to do? What do I need to do to sort this problem out? Work it out often becomes us. Now, I would say that there is a responsibility for the believer. Now, the first sermon on Philippians, I said there's often this tension in Philippians between what the Christian has to do as well as the work that God does. I think the context here helps us. We do have a responsibility to live out our faith the way Paul is telling us to here. But there is a specific context for this. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid the price that we could not. Jesus humbled himself on the cross, and we know that he did that to achieve salvation for all of mankind. He has done it all. He has a name that is above every name now, and when we praise him, we praise the Father. 
And there's more context here in verse 13, that we have a responsibility to work according to what God puts before us to do, to live in holiness. And verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We have a responsibility as Christians to live in holiness, to live in unity with one another, to live joyfully, rejoicing in the things that God has done. And that task is a big one to do and praise God that he works in us to help us achieve that. We are not left to do this on our own. Very easily we can get bogged down in the mess of life, even as Christians. Paul very strongly links chapter 2, verses uh, 12 to 18, to chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, where while there is that, that warning against divisions that comes up to the church there, there is also that, that amazing response to hearing the gospel that Paul is drawing to mind here. An amazing response to the gospel that we are united with God, that we are brought into a church family, a Christian family, we have believers alongside of us. We are given amazing convictions through his truths, things that we should hold to strongly. Keep doing those things. Be united to God as close as you can be. Be united with one another as much as you can be. Keep digging into God's word. Keep growing through his word. Through doing these things, we, we will work out, live out, demonstrate our faith to God Almighty, before God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whether you've been obedient always or not, and to my shame, I have not been, God is still the one who works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. He works in us that when we are pressured to cave into perhaps a culture of drunkenness at the workplace, whether we get caught up in mob-like anger at things that happen in the world around us and we're threatened to get caught up in those things. When we are tempted to adopt as our own mentalities that the world promotes which are contrary to God's word. Whether it's something we might think is as simple as cheating because everyone else does it. We are not to fall into those things. We are to live united with God who is holy And he is the one who works in us that we might live out our faith. Those worldly pressures are there. We we, we can't pretend they're not. We can't pretend they're not. They're often big. They're often intimidating. But work out your faith in fear and trembling. Because we live in the sight of and with God who is infinite and who is holy and who cannot stand the sight of sin working in us. When we work out our faith in fear and trembling, it's not the fear of a a deer who gets stuck in the headlights. Where there's that that frozenness, that inability to move, it's just not like that at all. It is fear and trembling, recognising the the perfection of God in our seriously flawed nature. It is recognising the glory, the majesty and the holiness of God and seeking to live in a way that is pleasing to him and to promote his good name in everything, literally everything that we do. 
we are to work out our faith. And as we work out our faith, as we move into our second point, we need to keep in mind the, these huge changes that the gospel has brought to our lives. We recognise that, that we are meant to shine bright. We aren't just people as Christians who are, who are going through the daily grind. We are people who, by the grace of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, can now conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel that Paul spoke about at the end of chapter 1. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where, where many deny the existence of God. We live in a world where many go further than simply to deny the existence of God and to ridicule the existence of God, to ridicule those who follow God. And while it's easy to withdraw and protect ourselves from that, those are evidences that we live in a world that is in desperate need of God's light. Ultimately, the, 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 the brightest light in the world was Jesus, that perfect model Paul held up for us last week in those verses we studied there. But Paul goes on to, to tell us what, what shining bright in our faith for Christ looks like in verses 14 to 16. It, it is light in the darkness. Again, it's not just going through the daily grind surviving. It's living for God's glory, glorifying God Almighty. And perhaps we, we want to know how, because admittedly saying work out your faith and fear and trembling is a little bit vague. What does that actually mean? Saying shine bright, likewise, is, is a nice thing to say. It's a nice little catchphrase, but what does it mean? Paul begins to give us some specifics of what that looks like. Don't complain. Do you know how hard that was for me to read that this week, being hardly able to walk? I needed to hear that. Don't complain. Oh man, I have so much I want to get off my chest though. Sometimes I want to tell people about how tough my circumstances are. But this, that or the other happened, we need to get it off our chest. Is Paul saying here we just bottle it all up? That's a healthy coping mechanism, isn't it? It's not, by the way. No, we, we can and we should be real with the things that happen to us, we, with other people as well as God in prayer. We really, really should be. But we need to be very careful about the nature that this honesty takes. See, Paul, through these verses here, is drawing a lot from both uh, Hebrew and Greek culture in the words and the uh, things that he's using here. And the not complaining here seems to be a very very strong link back to the time of the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness. Why, God, did you draw us out of slavery and captivity? I mean, why would you complain about that? But why did you draw us out of slavery and captivity? We want to go back there. God, why have you brought us to this point? Well, what's going on here? We're sick of the, the manner. There's complaining, there was grumbling that took place quite often. Paul, when he's talking here about not complaining and grumbling, isn't saying we just pretend that everything in our life is smooth sailing. We never acknowledge the hardships we might face to one another. What he's saying here is that we should never go down a path where we become less than thankful for any of God's continued blessings upon us. We should never complain about what God has given to us. 
We should never complain that we have less than we deserve because the reality is we have more than we deserve. Paul's reminding us here that just like the Israelites in the Old Testament were God's chosen people, God's chosen people are more than just one nation today. Gentiles have been grafted into Israel, but we too are God's people. There's a lesson there of complaining and how badly it ended for the Israelites that we are to learn from and do the opposite of, to rejoice in God's goodness to us. Again, we can be honest about things that happen in our lives, but when we go down a path of suggesting, even thinking that God hasn't been good to us, we're really heading in the wrong direction. We should be thankful for everything God has given us. So we don't complain and we don't have disputes, don't argue. Well, again, we could ask, well, what if someone wants to argue that Jesus is not God? If someone in the church says that, then it's appropriate that we give a response to that, but surely that's a dispute or an argument. What if someone wants to say that God is not three in one? What if someone wants to say that God is not good? What if someone wants to say that baptism is entirely unnecessary? What if someone wants to say that anyone can have the Lord's Supper, it doesn't matter whether they believe or not? Responding to those things is likely going to bring us into some level of dispute. I think it's right to respond to those things. There is a place for us to stand by what is true. Paul has spoken to them of being united and strong on their convictions. But when those disputes become about small ticket things, and we could look at little things like what brand of milk you have, what butcher you go to, what grocery store you go to, what supermarket you go to, which Coles is the answer, we could have those debates, but it would be pointless. We are to uphold unity, but unity so far as it maintains faithfulness to God's word. We are to take a stand for those things that God makes clear in his word. But we do see the, as I mentioned before with Euodia and Syntyche, we don't know what they were disputing. But we see the effect of that dispute that those two ladies were having. The church was being torn apart. Their witness was being tarnished. The name of Christ had the potential to be tarnished in Philippi because of their poor conduct, because of their dispute. Their ability to support Paul's gospel work, reaching more Gentiles, which was absolutely crucial at that point in time, and part of the Great Commission was at risk because of that dispute. There are things that we should stand firm on, but there are also things that if it's just simply threatening unity and not something we should be disputing, it becomes a matter of wisdom. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Paul gives us these as two concrete things that really set the believer apart. And they do set the Christian apart. They should set the Christian apart. If any of you have any social media platforms, open it up. You're going to see two people arguing, aren't you? I sometimes enjoy reading through the comment threads on things simply to see the, the, the arguments that take place. Uh, there was a, a head-high tackle at the football on Friday night. All sorts of opinions on it. It was intentional, it wasn't intentional, people becoming very personal. It's a, it's a worldly trait, isn't it, to have these disputes? If you don't have social media... You, Look at the news. There are complaints, there are disputes. It seems to, to just, most of it falls under those categories. And these things are things of darkness, which Paul makes it very clear the Christian is not to be part of. 
We are God's children. We are to be harmless and blameless. We are lights in a crooked and sinful generation, so shine bright for God by not doing these things. Pray that he will shine through you. If you ever have a chance to read the book of Zechariah, which I'd love to do a sermon series on, it's tricky, it's an apocalyptic prophecy. But there's this beautiful picture in there of this lamp being sustained by by the olive oil coming into it, and the Holy Spirit is that oil which allows that lamp to shine and continue to shine, to continue to burn for God's glory. That is what we are to be like. That is a picture of God's people. We should be a real, clear, distinct light in the darkness, showing that we love God and that God first loved us. Showing what it is to live in unity in a proper way. And we do this better and better by more and more tightly holding fast to, diving into, clinging on to, and never, ever letting go of the words of life. See, this is why Paul laboured, and this is why we should labour in the faith too. To see others do this. We know those who are in darkness. We know those who routinely grumble, complain and do all manner of things that are far from how God's called us to live. The church in Philippi used to be those people. Each one of us used to be those people. But God's not limited by our shortcomings. God can change even the hardest of hearts. So take Paul's example. Labour hard that God might use us to see some of those in darkness saved. We will never have laboured in vain if we do this. And Paul saying here that he won't have laboured in vain is a reference back to Isaiah 49. And we see there Christ himself speaking in the Old Testament. Imagine the joy of seeing the eyes of the spiritually dead, those who are in darkness, opened and seeing them join us in shining bright for God. Not only do we encourage one another when we do this, when we set aside those pointless points of grumbling, those pointless complaints, not only do we encourage one another, we are a witness to the watching world. We should shine bright for God's glory. And thirdly, rejoice. You get to verses 17 and 18. And we see that Paul has absolutely busted his gut for these guys, among others. He has worked hard for the gospel. And he describes himself as being poured out as a, as a drink offering. He's worked hard for a long time. He's in prison. He's in chains for sharing the gospel. Have you ever got home after a huge day and felt like there's not much left in the tank but also felt joy? It's not normally the thing we feel. There are occasions where we do feel that, just absolute joy and relief of getting home, but other times just 
the weight of the day stays with us. And Paul's not only worked hard, he describes himself as being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now, drink offerings were very common at the time, and it's incredibly likely that Paul was referring to uh, the type of drink offering described in Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, where after the sacrifice has been made, the cup is poured on top of the sacrifice. Well, what Paul's saying here is that his service, which is for the good of God and for the faith of other believers, is likely going to result in his own death. We know Paul had opponents at the time. We read through 2 Corinthians and Paul gives a a very strong defence of himself as well as in other places. Uh, Claims that Paul was selfish. Paul was just there for himself. You look at what is going on here. Despite what his opponents said, that there isn't much evidences of selfishness in what Paul did, are there? He's giving it all up for God and giving it all up so that others might know God. But still he rejoices. Because... The Philippians, despite their struggles and their difficulties at times, they are living as lights in the world and light bearers to a world in great need of light. When Christians live as harmless and blameless, holy for God, fully for God, there are two reasons to be found there for rejoicing. One is that we get to be lights to the world. We were in darkness. We were sinners unworthy of grace, but we can now shine as lights in the darkness. That is incredible reason for us to rejoice. And even though Paul knows he's likely giving it all up in an earthly sense for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of fellow believers knowing the gospel, there is that joy and rejoicing in the idea of that eternal rest that we look forward to. Be glad and rejoice with Paul. All through these verses, Paul is is drawing very strongly through the imagery he's using of um, hard work concepts, strong work ethic concepts from both Greek and, and Jewish culture. What this tells us is that to to work out our faith, which results in us shining bright for God, is not going to be easy. It it tells us the the thematic um, ideas that Paul brings to bear here, it tells us that it won't be easy, that there will be struggles, we'll hit speed bumps along the way, maybe those speed bumps will feel like mountains at times. Look again at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We do not labour in vain. We work for God. And we work with God enabling, equipping us and providing for us every single step along the way rejoice and be glad in the service that he has given us to do where once we contributed to the darkness and nothing more now we can shine as lights pointing people to salvation in Jesus Christ 
Amen, and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these words of Philippians that we have looked at this morning. We pray that you might continue to work in each one of our hearts in a way which curbs our sinful tendencies, where we are prone to do harm or be less than blameless. We pray that you might soften those areas, refine them, that we might better shine as lights for you. We pray, O oh God, that we might be fully committed to lives of service to you. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We remember all that Christ did and we pray that we too might follow his example just as Paul did, willing to give all for your glory and that others might grow and come to a saving faith in you. Work in us, we pray. Help us do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.